Welcome back to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. This is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And one of the things that I have been hoping to speak to someone about is the new awareness about emotional intelligence. Uh, Robin Hills is with us today. He's the director of EI for Change. It's a company that specializes in educational training, coaching, and personal development focused around emotional intelligence. And Robin, you have taught over 70,000 people in 175 countries how to build this kind of resilience and self-awareness based on the tenets of let's pay more attention to our emotional intelligence at, or at least as much attention to our emotional intelligence as we do our intellect, our intellectual quotient, correct? That's absolutely correct. Yes, we all experience emotions all the time. So uh, it's really just a case of using our emotions more efficiently and more effectively. Well, you know what's interesting to me is growing up in a family that was very much about not paying attention to your emotions and just trying to get things done. We aren't really taught as children, unless our parents are very, very self-aware, how to identify, accept, and honor our emotions. No, that's right. I think there is a lot of change that is happening or was happening um, before the beginning of this year to try and bring awareness of emotional intelligence into education and into schools. But unfortunately, it seems to be the sort of thing that they'll look at at kindergarten and the first few years of primary school and then forget about it as the students progress through primary and secondary education and go on into university, which is a real shame because emotions drive learning. Emotions motivate us. So when we're emotionally engaged with something and we really enjoy learning about it, it'll go in and it'll stick. Uh-huh, yeah. And even in the corporate setting when, you know, I was a journalist and uh, really passionate about something, somebody would say to me, you're letting your emotions get the best of you. And I was like, of course, because it's driven by what I care about, by my yes. intellect, by my curiosity. So what, give me a little bit of background about why it was that emotions started having such a kind of bad rap. I think emotions have had a bad rap because they have been a driver for people to act in certain ways and people will blame their behavior on their emotions mm. rather than actually understanding that there's a gap between having the emotion and actually thinking and doing something about it. So it's not the emotion that's the problem. It's what you do with the emotion and how you work with the emotion that becomes the problem. I love that explanation so much. Go on. Well, I, I think emotions have also had a bad rap and they continue to have a bad rap because there are a lot of people, even psychologists and emotional intelligence practitioners do this. They label emotional intelligence as positive and negative. Well, Emotions aren't positive and emotions aren't negative. Emotions are emotions. We experience them for a reason. So it's not the emotion that's positive. It's not the emotion that's negative. It's what we do with the emotion. It's what the emotion is telling us and how we act with the emotion that leads to the positive or the negative behavior. Can I give you an example here, Please. Sheila, a couple of examples just yeah. to, to exemplify this and, and make it a little bit more uh, understandable for your listeners. Let's have a look at anger. 
people will label anger as a negative emotion, but anger helps us to right a wrong. It motivates us. It gets us to focus on doing good and making changes. And without anger, change wouldn't happen. Mm. So it's how you use anger. By the same token, happiness is supposed to be a nirvana that we all aspire towards, a positive emotion. But just think about it. If you're communicating with somebody who's deliriously happy all the time, it's very, very challenging. Ah, oh, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Just be, just do it. Just go for it. Doesn't matter. The other thing about happiness is that it helps us to, well, one of the issues with happiness, one of the negative aspects of happiness is we'll take unnecessary risks mm -hmm. because we're so happy about the world and everything that's going on around us. We'll just walk over the road without even a care in the world as the number nine bus comes and hits <laughs> us and knocks us into oblivion. You have been now um, working in business and in corporate America for more than 40 years trying to, you know, get people to pay attention to how important it is to be aware of our emotional intelligence. It seems to me that most recently, corporate leaders and having discussions about compassionate leadership and listening leadership, they're starting to come around to this. Are you noticing more enthusiasm, more willingness from corporate America to learn about what you teach, Robin? Yes, I think it's still an uphill slog because uh, I go into some corporates and they say, we don't have emotions here. Uh, well, you don't leave them at home. You don't leave them in the car. It's really a case of helping them to understand that emotions are there driving them to make good business decisions. Well, and, and without emotions, you probably don't have creativity or innovation or passion you, either. You don't. So. You don't. And, and there is some really good research to show that people who've had damage to the limbic system, that's the, the ring in the brain that filters and, and works with emotions. If there's damage to that part of the brain, then people have real difficulty making the simplest decisions. Mm. They can't get up in the morning. They have difficulty building relationships. They don't know what to wear. They don't know what to eat. They, they can't make any decision just simply because every decision we make is driven by an emotion. Wow. You know, when, when you talked about anger as being the driving force for positive change, I'm thinking about here in America right now with the Black Lives Matter movement and how it really took an entire country of people extremely angry with the excessive use of force against black Americans to do something about it. Short of anger, short of anger, how can we still be effective when we want to get something done? Because I don't think any of us feel comfortable on relying on anger as our first way of being effective in the world. No, I think the, the, the great thing about the Black Lives Matter movement is it's the anger that has driven forward some of the changes that need to be made. But there are people out there who are paying lip service to it. I'm here in the United Kingdom and we have exactly the same issue with our leaders. They will say what they think is the right thing to say at the right time mm -hmm. and then quietly forget about it. So I think the anger is there to drive the understanding that things do need to change 
but it's how you affect that change over a long period of time. And it's not going to be a, a short, quick fix. I mean, a lot of the issues are so ingrained in society and in our psyche that it's going to take years to wash them out. Well, I it's guess that's what I'm getting at, Robin, is, is uh, sustained anger isn't even going to do it. So how do we transfer to the next emotion, to the next set of doing capability in order to achieve the change the anger brought up? I think what we need to do um, in our capacity, because neither you nor I are black, and I think we need to put that on the table. Yeah. Um, we will never understand the depth of frustration and anger and annoyance around the Black Lives Matter movement. But what we can do is empathize. We can work to see it from their perspective. Mm. And through that, we can have better understanding and better engagement. And because of who we are and what we are, again, going back to the fact that we're not black, we will be criticized for not having that depth of understanding and that ability to engage at that deep emotional level. And I think we've just got to accept that. And it's up to all of us, black, white, yellow, any color in between to work to empathize with each other and make the world a better place. That's emotional intelligence. Well, the reason I bring up that example, Robin, is because I do believe that the street has now brought this issue into corporate boardrooms. I'm seeing incredible movement by major corporations in terms of hiring more black leaders, increasing their base of understanding about systemic racism. And I just keep thinking, if we had the groundwork for emotional intelligence, I don't believe that it would always slap us in the face like, oh, you mean there's still these things going on because it would foster a more open kind of communication in a corporation that would allow the leaders to understand what the needs and wants and the desires of the employee workforce really are. It is, and it doesn't stop in terms of skin color. It, it extends into things like age, it, uh, gender, religion, all of these things. We just need to be more tolerant of each other. We just need to have more diversity and equality in the workplace. So everybody matters and everybody can make a contribution. We've got to look at mental health and people who've got mental health issues. They have as much right through neurodiversity to be considered. There are indications that we should be looking at personality and personality traits and not excluding people because they've got a different way of thinking because those different ways of thinking can be very valuable. They can see things and they can engage with things in the world that you and I can't see and will mm. never be able to see. So let's look at autism. But where does it stop? You know, do we have a, a black person on the board? Do we have somebody who's a, a lesbian? Do we have a, a, you know, a straight woman on the board? Do we have somebody from Cambodia? Do we have somebody from Vietnam? You, you know, at some point, we've just got to say enough is enough. We are who we are. You've got to accept us for what we are and help us to make a positive contribution. I, I will say this. 
because I think it's absolutely vital. I'm a white, middle-aged, middle-class man who lives in the United Kingdom. I cannot do anything about that. That is who I am. Now, with the best will in the world, I'm never going to be a member of Diana Ross's Supremes. I just do not have the genes for it. Right. I mean, they wouldn't want me anyway, because I can't sing. Yeah. But this is where we need to actually accept who we are. Now that I'm part of a group, a stereotypical group, and there are elements of that group that I do not like. So what I've got to do is to go out into the world and be the best version of me that I can possibly be, because I can't change it. I'm a white, middle-aged, middle-class man from the United Kingdom. I'm an Englander, but it doesn't mean to say I wear Union Jack shorts and go to football matches and fight and (laughs) drink lager. That sounds like a good idea. But, uh, you know, we've just got to accept who we are and just be that, but be a positive version of that. Mm, I love that. I want to talk about how emotional intelligence actually will help us build resilience, what the interaction between the two things are and why it's so important that one not, uh, that you can't have one without the other. Well, it it goes back to emotions, and we are resilient through the way in which we use our emotions. And if I may, Sheila, let me knock another myth on the head. Please. Resilience is not about bouncing back. The word bouncing back is being banded around in the media, right, left, and center in the United Kingdom and across the world. We are going to bounce back. No, we're not going to bounce back. The world has changed. What we are going to do is to move forward into a new paradigm. What that's going to be, I don't know. But we can't go back to how things were because we've learned, we've grown, we've adapted, we've developed through that process. Our brains are not the same. Resilience is not about bouncing back. Resilience is about using emotions and using emotions well. But let, let me give you a proper definition of resilience. It's not about this ability to bounce back. It's the ability to understand that life is meaningful and have an objective view of reality and also having the adaptability and creativity to make the best of what the world serves up at this particular moment in time. If you do all of those and it's not easy, you become a lot more resilient. I I loved this most recent um, research that I read in the New York Times where in some ways resilience is a little bit overarching in terms of that it allows our institutions and our government and the people we have come to depend on to do certain things off the hook when we're always enforcing this sort of independent up by your bootstraps resilience. How How do you feel about that? I was really struck by that study because I was like, oh, there, there goes shattering another myth. <laughs> I'm in full agreement of them. I think the word is overused and I think it gives the people in power the opportunity to drop that word in and, uh, uh, and exonerate themselves of any responsibility mm-hmm. because everybody is going to be more resilient through all of this process. Well, we'll come through it uh, and we'll survive. Does that make us resilient? Right. You might want to edit this bit out. Okay. Um, 
I am very embarrassed by our royal family because they will often talk about resilience in their speeches when they're addressing the masses. And what I found is that every time they talk to the commoners, you and me, they will use the word resilience to make us feel better. Now, unfortunately, I don't think anybody in our royal family really understands the word resilience. They're not going to have to sleep rough. They don't know what it's like not to have any money in the bank. They don't know what it's like to go and fight for the next meal. They don't know what it's like to do a proper nine to five job. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't make me feel very good to hear them use the word resilience. Um, contrary to your uh, suggestion that I might take that out, you just proved my point. <laughs> you just gave the most stunning example of what we're speaking of. Um, the people in power often will talk about resilience. You should find this resilience. You can do it. Um, and it does allow our institutions off the hook. It does allow the, the people in power off the hook when we say, oh, this is, this is all me then. It's all on me. What's wrong with me? Why can't I do it? So I love that, Robin. Let me add something further to this discussion on resilience, uh, and this is often overlooked. The idea that resilience is something that you've got to have more and more and more of, and I find this a lot in terms of corporates. We want to build people's resilience, but what people don't understand is that you can actually have too much resilience. And I think this is what we're seeing again with some of our people in power, because they have come through the change process. They've understood what needs to happen and they've got a, an acceptance of it and they completely overlook everybody else's going through it and they completely lose what we've been talking about earlier, their empathy. Yeah. So they have too much resilience. And we have different leaders because we're in different countries and the leaders in both of our countries, I think at times show too much resilience. I, I want to talk to you about mental health and how it um, dovetails with our discussion about emotional intelligence. I just saw a study that said 65% of Americans are reporting the worst um, mental health crisis of their lifetimes, that um, they are deeply depressed, anxiety-ridden. This is 60%. That's almost, you know, for Americans who don't like to admit that they're having a difficult time, this is shocking news to data gatherers at the Kaiser Foundation. And so part of what I think is happening is that people are maybe even for the first time because of COVID-19 and the stresses of quarantine and economic uncertainty, actually taking stock of their emotions and saying, wow, I, I am not doing well. And it's not just because they're not sleeping. It's not just because they're worried about paying rent. I think that overall there is an awareness about kind of an emotional deficit in our country and probably like you, likely yours as well. Yeah, 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 very much so. And I must say, I'm not surprised. And uh, I, I think a lot of the emotional lack of well-being is around the fact that people have been locked away in small environments and they've had their livelihoods taken away from them. A lot of people have had their work stripped away from their lives, so it doesn't give them any focus or any reason to be. And they get 
very, very confused, mixed messages as to what they should be doing. Mm. And a lot of people have felt that they've lost control. And unfortunately, that lack of control is down to a lack of resilience. Mm. And what we are finding is that people are going into the depths of despair and they're moving from that into more clinical depression. If people have got clinical depression, it means that there is something wrong with the pathways in their brain and they need some chemicals short term to rectify the problem. Anti-anxiolytics such as Valium are absolutely perfect in this setting, but they need to be managed with a clinician and they need to be managed well. So it's not a case of avoiding the issue around clinical depression or the fact that there's this need for medication. It's a case of actually stepping up to the mark and saying, I need help. Love that. And, you know, Robin, one of the um, things that I think is happening with Americans is as they begin to try to seek out um, mental health care during this time, they're understanding that all of the things we've been talking about, all the structural inequities are against them in terms of taking care of their emotional health. And so what kind of suggestions do you have for people if they're at the beginning of this precipice of trying to understand who they are and why they're reacting in the way that they're reacting? And you can plug your own books here because I think that that's perfectly logical to do. But beyond that, anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with? Let me refer to the personal transition through change curve. And I do a lot of work with a good friend of mine, John Fisher, who I met years after I'd actually started using his change curve. Now, his change curve is based on the change curve that everybody knows by Isabel Kubler-Ross. In business, the change curve that Isabel Kubler-Ross introduces is based on grief and bereavement. And it's then kind of transferred over to the business environment. To a certain extent, it works. But what John Fisher's change curve does is it goes into a lot more depth and it considers more emotions and it allows people to go off the change curve. So if people are in denial, then they're not on the change curve. And if people are disillusioned in the corporate world, they're not on the change curve. So there's no point in trying to pull them onto the change curve, kicking and screaming, because they will resent that. But to go back to your question, if we start looking at the change curve, right at the bottom is depression and despair. And here people are reconnecting with who they are. And I think the important thing, if we can look at it from a very positive aspect, Mm. if people in this position, and I know it's very easy for me to say this and incredibly difficult to do it when you're in this position, if people can recognize that it's an appropriate emotion to be in and it's positively reconnecting with who you are in the changing world around you, it may give them some hope, it may give them some sucker, it may give them something positive to cling on to. I want to also just have you talk about how people can find EI for change, how they can get involved in this um, 
pursued, especially if they're raising young children so that they raise emotionally intelligent children and why it's so important for our school systems to begin integrating this kind of curriculum. I think to go back to the first part of your question, uh, if people want to get more information about emotional intelligence through EI for Change, go and have a look at the EI for Change website, which is ei4change.com. And there is a host of free material there for people to download. There are quizzes. There are online courses, there are free books available on the website. So go along to the website and take advantage of what's there. Now, in terms of raising emotionally intelligent children, firstly, it's important to be aware of who you are and have the awareness that you are an emotional being. And there are going to be times when you are raising children that they will get the better of you. And uh, emotionally, you will not be doing the best thing in that space. But, right. uh, you know, you're human. So uh, just accept that there are going to be times when that happens. I have raised successfully, I can honestly say, two girls, and they are both in relationships, they're both working hard, and my eldest daughter, Emily, is a, a mindfulness coach, counsellor, and practitioner, and I am learning now from her how to be more emotionally intelligent rather than the other way around. And I recognised very early on that um, their pathways are going to be different from mine. So I had no expectations of them doing anything that I wanted them to do, apart from lead very honest, high-valued, high, highly principled lives, but to go out into the world and make their own pathway through that. And if I take that perspective and I help them along that pathway, that's me being the best parent that I can possibly be. So giving them whatever support they need around the decisions that they make. Now, if they're going to make a decision that I don't agree with, I, I will certainly have the discussion with them, but it will be an adult to adult discussion in an objective manner and try to keep the emotion that I'm feeling out of it. <laughs> <laughs> For the expert to not bring his toolbox in. I love it. Robin Hills is the director of EI for Change and check it out at eiforchange.com. Robin, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. We will definitely have you back to talk more about emotional intelligence. Sheila, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you want to learn more about our information, you can go to our website at beyondwellwithsheilahamilton.com. We've got all kinds of resources and our link to Robin's page. And if you love the podcast, as so many people do, please give us a thumbs up wherever you listen. <laughs>